0: to Ohio v. The World, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher, and don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty.
1: Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2019, and welcome back to Ohio v. The World. It's Episode 7, Ohio vs. Unemployment. Today we'll be talking about Coxie's Army, the army raised by industrialist Jacob Coxie of Massillon, Ohio, and is known basically as the First March on Washington. We'll be joined by Jerry Prout, Professor Political science professor at Marquette University in Milwaukee, and the author of Coxey's Crusade for Jobs, Unemployment in the Gilded Age. He'll walk us through Coxey's march from Wash from Maslin to the nation's capital, and we're right back where we were last episode in 1893, 1894. Some of my favorite years in history, and uh, talking about Coxey's Army, which was the story of the spring. Our guest Jerry Prout calls Coxey's march to Washington the most covered media story, uh, basically from the Civil War to the 20th century. And it's right back where we were as these men marched for jobs uh, during the country's first Great Depression, the Panic of 1893. We'll visit the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, the White City, uh, one of my favorite events in American history, just this World's Fair that was so cool if you ever read the the Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Um, I advise you to check that book out. But we'll join Coxie's Army. He meets up with his, basically the guy who'd become his co-chair for the march in Chicago. We'll talk about all the things going on in the panic of 1893 that led to the march. We'll join Jacob Coxie and Coxie's Army on his journey, his five-week journey from Massillon, Ohio, to the nation's capital to try to present his good roads plan on the steps of the Capitol. Now, this episode goes out to the jobless as we start 2019. You know, Coxie was your warrior in showing that unemployed people uh, were people too. You know, I've, I've been unemployed before in my life. Hell, I've even been on unemployment. And what Coxie's army uh, goes to prove is it, it humanizes jobless people, the unemployed. It's not just bums or vagabonds or tramps, as they were called back then. And we'll ask uh, our guest, Jerry Prout, if Coxie's march was the basis for The Wizard of Oz, written by Frank Baum, who covered, as a journalist, Coxie's March. Some quick show news, big news as we start this uh, 2019. Ohio v. the World has a sponsor. We are sponsored by GoBus. Go to RideGoBus.com. Uh, GoBus, which is a all-Ohio bus company that kind of connects rural communities to major urban centers, and these are nice buses that people down in in southeast Ohio that I met with uh, great folks, Matt Robertson and and, and others. Uh, But check out GoBus, ridegobus.com, and you can get anywhere in Ohio. Athens to Columbus is is $10, and these are safe, secure buses, not the kind of Greyhound buses that you might be used to. Um, So check them out, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and they'll take you even up to Canton, uh, right by Maslin, where we'll be today. Speaking of Canton, our beer for the episode is Royal Docks Brewing Company uh, out of Canton where you can go see their their tap room in Massillon, Ohio. And we are drinking the Backyard Crusher. It's just an American lager. It's got a little bit of a lemony zest uh, lager to it, 5.6%. Really good beer. You can find I found it down here in Columbus. Uh, and they have a bunch of other really solid beers. But you can check them out at docs.beer. Uh, again, Royal Docks Brewing Company. And check out the Backyard Crusher. They've got another great IPA called Crime of Passion Fruit. Um, but again, really cool place, and it's right in Maslin, where our story will take place today. Also, one of our favorite podcasts, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, a simulcast of one of our most recent episodes, Bruce Carlson and I did, their host, Bruce Carlson, uh, Ohio versus the Cold War. So check them out, myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Anywhere you get your podcast, one of my favorite shows, really one of the inspirations for our show. Uh, Really cool, some of the really nice things he said about us. So we welcome any of those listeners who are listening for one of the first times coming over from Bruce's show. Again, my history can beat up your politics. But without further ado, we're going to take a walk. We're going to go from Maslin, Ohio, all the way on foot to Washington, D.C. We tell the story of Coxie's Army. It's Episode 7. Ohio versus Unemployment. The story of Coxey's March on Washington in 1894 really begins in 1893, with the panic of 1893. It's often thought that the Great Depression, the late 20s and early 1930s, is really the first Great Depression, but the Panic of 1893 was considered just as bad at the time. We had a succession of panics, 1857 we've talked about. Go back to listen to Ohio versus Gold, or 1873, the Panic of 1873 when we talked about uh, in our first season episode called Ohio versus the Victorian Age. This episode, we're talking about the Panic of 1893, which really seemed to be worse than both of those we asked our guest, Jerry Prout, what were the causes of the panic? And just how bad was it, not only in, across the country, but of course here in Ohio?
2: This was really the first Great Depression, uh, maybe the worst the, the worst panic certainly the country had ever experienced. Uh, by all measurements, the worst until the Great Depression in October of 29. The causes, as with most depressions, are hard to sort of ferret out. But, but as best economists have untangled it, it was... A problem with all sectors of the economy in the 1880s, uh, expanding rapidly, uh, agriculture overproducing, as is, is typical, and the, there was actually the beginning of a recession in agriculture during the 1880s. The railroad boom uh, had uh, sort of eclipsed after Reconstruction had, had been on uh, hyperactive, and uh, there was a uh, uh, bankruptcy in the Philadelphia and Reading Line, which really alerted uh, investors to the. The panic that was to come. And uh, so there were roughly about 15,000 business failures in this period. This is a four year period that lasts until 1897. Um, And um, on May 5th, when the market, the stock market collapsed, uh, a year before Coxey arrives in Washington with his march, about 120 railroads go out of business, 650 banks, as I said, 15,000 business failures. The difficulty with all this, of course, is getting a handle on how many men were out of work, mostly men since women weren't really counted in the workforce, but men weren't either because there was no real accurate way to uh, gauge how many. Uh, but the best estimates are around 3 million men. Uh, this is in an economy that's still uh, about over 50% industrial, but still largely farming. Um, I would add that in your state of Ohio in 1894, then January, the Ohio State Legislature in 1894 uh, refuses a plea from the unions to set up some kind of work relief. There's no social safety net in place as the Depression takes hold. So it's a very severe Depression and really the backdrop for this event we're going to discuss.
1: That same year of 1893, we saw the World's Columbian Exposition, a World's Fair in Chicago held in Jackson Park an amazing event of new inventions. It's called the White City because it's so lit up, um, these massive uh, structures that were built, and people, millions of people visited from across the world. It's here in Chicago that Frederick Jackson Turner gives his famous The Frontier is Closed speech, talking about the West and saying that there's nowhere left for Americans to expand to. This was a country that there was always new lands, new states popping up and new territories to be conquered. But Jackson Turner declared the frontier closed. This was a very, very scary thought to a lot of Americans. An entire century that we had spent expanding from the colonies all the way to the coast of the Pacific did really seem closed. And as the economic shortages you know came down, the panic of 1893, it seemed that maybe America had reached its peak. We talked to Jerry about the Columbian Exposition. And we go back to Chicago in 1893.
2: The Columbian Exposition, which is the Great World's Fair, which opens on May the 1st, four days, ironically, before the market crashes in 1893, as sort of a coming out party for the, for the new industrialized America. Um, it's full of invention and spectacle. There, it's uh, some 10,000 electrical lights, uh, AC, by the way, not DC, that as it was Tesla's AC uh, current rather than Edison's, but it still lights it up. And Daniel Burnham, who was the architect, had created this soft white paint so the roofs, rooftops would glow in the sunlight. And then at night, it, of course, the entire, these magnificent uh, Gilded Age structures are all lit up. There's one remaining, of course, if people have been to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, it's basically all of Jackson Park that was filled with some, some 600 buildings. Um, Anyway, uh, it's an interesting exposition, and and, and one from a historical standpoint notable because that's where Frederick Jackson Turner gave his frontier thesis talk in 1893. I didn't didn't
1: realize that was at at the exposition.
2: It was uh, not well attended, and it it was a very uh, hot—they didn't have air conditioning. They had lots of lights but no air conditioning. And, uh, but you mentioned Carl Brown and this is important because Coxey and Brown both end up in Chicago. Brown's been there from basically the start of the exposition in May. He was there as a reporter for a working man's newspaper out of San Francisco called the uh, San Francisco Argus. So he's there, but Coxie comes and they both attend the bimetallic convention. Uh, we can come back to the great monetary debates, which are confusing. Yeah. But essentially, this is a convention of bimetalists—people who want both a silver and uh, silver and gold standard—and uh, particularly want silver back in currency.
1: The unemployed was not a, a class that was recognized. The word unemployment—it's not really used in the 1890s during the Gilded Age. Coxey's army serves to show the plight that it isn't just someone can't get work because. They're not working hard enough, or they don't want it, or they're lazy. Well, Coxey's army and the sympathy that is given to the marchers caused by this panic of 1893 show that people be- can become unemployed in a capitalist system for any number of reasons. And that sometimes it is important that the government steps in and gives assistance to those people. But there was no unemployment. You didn't get an unemployment check or a welfare check in the 1890s. The federal government, which is much smaller, and as Jerry points out you know there really wasn't any of these social safety nets that we're used to here today but Coxey's army helped to bring the plight of the unemployed into focus nationally we asked Jerry just about the word unemployed unemployment in the 1890s and just what was going on again in the country and in Ohio with how many people were suddenly unemployed due to the crash of 1893
2: so yeah, that's a very good question as well. So the, the, you know, the, the word, if, if you look back in the origins, I did a little bit of research around this back when I was writing the book, and uh, it, it was hardly used at all uh, before the 1880s. It comes into the to the vocabulary a little bit at that point, but uh, even in the even as Coxie's Coxsey marches, March's unemployment as a word as a concept even is not really well understood. Um, when you see the newspaper accounts that. Uh, we, we'll discuss later, the uh, references are usually to tramps, vagabonds, uh, most disparagingly as bums. Um, you had the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which was set up in 1884, but it takes until the well after the market crash in 1929 before their accurate uh, counting of the unemployed per se. They're sort of, sort of uh, industry by industry. Uh, census but of uh, employment but not unemployment you again in Ohio for example there was a company called the Buckeye Mower and Reaper company which I think eventually it went bankrupt during this depression eventually I think becomes a part of John Deere as we know it today but it in the in the depression loses 50% of its employees um, Sam Gompers who's head of AFL suggests about three million people out of work in this period so that's a lot That's
1: a lot it, it's a lot the country was changing rapidly as the century came to a close. Cities were growing. People were moving from the farms to the cities, um, and business was, you know, had expanded to the point where the Gilded Age, the haves and the have-nots, had never been more different. We talked to Jerry just about the, the terrible and, and troubling economic climate that people faced and the Gilded Age conditions of rich and poor
2: just to preface, I'm, I'm a big believer in capitalism. Uh, I worked in, in the capitalist system for most of my career. And um, I believe it's the best way of organizing economic activity, but it certainly doesn't make it perfect. And I think history teaches those of us who are capitalists that we need to understand that the uh, invisible hand of the market isn't always enough. So um, it sometimes takes an event like uh, the one we're talking about, Cox's army, a spectacle, to dramatize one of the ill effects, which is unemployment, and uh, Cox's march, I think this is really the thesis of the book, served to humanize this concept, which was ill understood at the time, and really bring it in front of people's attention in a way that had not been grasped before. You know, the, again, the country after the 1890 census, uh, it really it really reverses from about 53 percent of the nation's farms in 1870 to about 43 percent. You have the beginning of the uh, sort of corporatization, as Alan Trachtenberg uh, wrote about it several years ago in an award-winning book. It's uh, the beginnings of the corporatization of America. You have concentration of wealth not only in um, about 300 companies, which are owning about 40% of the nation's manufacturing, but you also have this phenomenon of the upper 10, which is a way of referring to the sort of stratification of of wealth, 200,000 people controlling about 70% of the nation's wealth at the time. So this is, you know, the the tycoons in the Gilded Age. When a British reporter, W.T. Steed, who followed the Coxie phenomenon, comes to Chicago to cover the uh, exhibition of 1893, the Columbian Exposition, the Great World's Fair, he estimates that the saloons in Chicago are serving more free meals to the Homeless and jobless than are the relief uh, charities and, and this, the city government. So it's a much different period. There's no social safety net. These are the casualties of capitalism, and, and the country had to figure out how to deal with it.
1: Subject of today's show, Jacob Coxey from Maslin, Ohio. We talked to, uh, to Jerry, who did so much great research on his book, Coxey's Crusade for Jobs, uh, a story that we saw Coxey's March, Coxey's Army always popped up in all these books we were reading, but we never knew what it was. Jerry's the one who really broke it down, this book from 2016. Uh, there's a link to buy it uh, on Amazon. In the show description, and again, you can see it in, in our social media as well, and we really appreciate him joining us. But the question is, who is Jacob Coxey, The man who became one of the most famous people in America in 1894. He was a, quar- you know, a quarry owner um, and a pretty successful businessman in northeast Ohio in the small city of Massillon. We talked to Jerry Prout about Jacob Coxey, his trip to Chicago and the World's Fair in 1893. North.
2: Yeah, so he's, uh, he's our st- star performer, I guess, as it were. Uh, he's a very interesting individual. He uh, was born in 1854. He lives to be ni- 97, died in 1951. Uh, I've run into people in Massillon, Ohio, who uh, remember him coming down the street. Uh, he was a very cheery person, always smiling. Uh, he was 40 at the time of the march. But this is a key fact. In 1873, this is a, uh, one of the earlier panics in America that were successive, uh, as we still have today, recessions uh, that occurred almost cyclically. And there was one in 1873, and Coxey loses his job. But uh, in 1878, his uncle decides to go into the scrap iron business. So that takes them in 1881 to Maselot. So Coxey's there, with his uncle looking at furnaces from an old foundry. And the foundry uh, is nearby a stone quarry, which is for sale. And Coxey uh, knows enough about the iron and steel industry to know what kind of silica they needed. And this, this purchase becomes attractive to him. He, he actually uh, raises the money to buy it and becomes, it takes on, a, on his own career running a, a stone quarry and, in fact, expands that over time. So that he eventually had another quarry near Mass Lawn. Just to put him in perspective as a businessman, he had a net worth in at the at the age of 40 when they were marching of about um, a quarter of a million dollars. Now, that may not seem like a whole lot of money by today's standards, but uh, he earned about $50,000 a year at the age of 40. And if you look at uh, Carnegie, who is more or less a contemporary, a little bit older, at 32, Carnegie's... Uh, had uh, about 16 companies, about assets of $400,000, and annual income of about $56,000. So, I mean, Carnegie goes on to much greater wealth, but Coxie by every standard, was a very wealthy man, Uh, and uh, that makes this episode that he embarks on all the more remarkable because he obviously didn't have to do this, but but felt compelled.
1: It's in Chicago where Coxie would meet Carl Brown, the rough and gruff Californian in the buckskin jacket. He was kind of the hype man for Coxey's Army. He helped put it together. He helped keep the you know the army in order, and he was just a constant source of entertainment for the media. But Carl Brown also was a smart man. He really did see this march as, as a religious event, as much as he saw it as something to relieve you know the the struggling and the unemployed in America. Um, and we we talk a little bit with Jerry Proud about that. We could do a whole another episode on on. Mr. Brown, Carl Brown's uh, religious views. But one thing's for sure, this march never becomes the story it does. It never gets the attention and never finds its place in our history books without the addition of Carl Brown. We asked Jerry Proud, our guest, just who the hell was Carl Brown?
2: He observes Brown. Brown was going down. Brown was doing two things. He was ostensibly reporting for this newspaper out of San Francisco, but he was also uh, there because he was uh he was performing in the uh wild west show he was dressed up like bill cody he was he he his trademark his signature costume throughout this period and also during the march was a, a buckskin coat which he wore every day mm-hmm. which caused costs of concern among his fellow marchers by the way and and a grand sombrero he was quite a colorful character he was uh Uh, but he would go down in the evening to Hyde Park and, and he would be a part of these debates that were occurring down there. And one night, uh, decides to challenge Ignatius Donnelly, the famous, uh, author of Caesar's column, a dystopian novel. And, and he's also a populist congressman from Minnesota and so forth and so on. And Donnelly is the one two years before or a year before in 1892 in Omaha has written the preamble to the, to the People's Party, uh, Ah, uh, platform, and so uh, Brown engages Donnelly in this debate, and by all accounts, uh, defeats him in the in in the in their discussion, and or their debate. And so this really impresses Coxey, and the two become friends. But Brown's a, the most interesting character because he's uh, by, uh, he's chosen to become a theosophist, which is a very uh, mm-hmm. sort of cult religion at the time, very popular actually with with many of the uh, eastern elites. And, and so Brown is, is a part of this movement and uses it because for, he's lost his wife, he's uh, ravaged by this, he wants to reunite with her, and there's a sort of reincarnation uh, aspect to theosophy, at least he thinks there is. So um, <clears throat> when the march later, when Coxie and Brown returned to Ohio... In uh, when Brown comes to visit Coxey in Ohio and actually live with him uh, at, at the end of 1893 to plan the march, which in 1894. So he's quite the eccentric, quite the interesting character, sort of the total opposite of the straight-laced uh, businessman Jacob Coxey.
1: Ohio View the World is brought to you by GoBus. Hit up ridegobus.com and all Ohio bus services. Whether you're going from Cleveland to Cincinnati or the $10 trip from Athens to Columbus, you can recline in their comfy chairs or download our newest episode using their free onboard Wi-Fi. GoBus is the safest and classiest way to travel the Buckeye State. So make sure you check out RideGoBus.com for their routes and their cheap rates. That'll get any Ohioan where they need to go in style. And now, back to the show. Guys, go to RideGoBus.com. Check out our new sponsor. We're so excited. They'll be sponsoring uh, the remaining episodes this season. So very cool of them to do so. Coxie had this good roads plan. The whole point of the march is just for Coxie to go to Washington, D.C. with his supporters and give his speech on the steps of the Capitol building, his good roads plan. The roads in in the United States were, were terrible. Much of the infrastructure here in America was dilapidated. And The federal government in the eighteen nineties really didn't see any reason to change it, nor did it really have the money to do so. But what was this centerpiece of the march? We asked Jerry Prout to describe to us Coxey's Good Roads Plan.
2: So this is his idea. He uh, and this is central to the to the at least. From his perspective, this is the central idea of the march. Uh, for Brown, it's it's a little bit different. But for Coxey, he is concerned with the number of unemployed. He, as I said, he had to shut one of his quarries down. He's very generous to his employees. He pays them about a dollar fifty a day, uh, which is very good by the by those by the standards of 1894. But he has this idea that if we would just get off the gold standard, silver standard, just go back to to. Uh, greenbacks, and if the government would stand behind uh, bond issuance at the local, state, whatever level, up to a, a level of $500 million, which I checked uh, with my friends back in the day at the Office of Management and Budget, as best they could tell, that was about equal to the entire size of the U.S. Uh, budget in 1894. But but. Uh, if they would spend, if we would, if we would guarantee up to five hundred million dollars in bond issuance for the building of roads, uh, we could put all the the uh, unemployed back to work, and then some, and create. And this was his hope: a system of national roads that would be unequal. Now, th- now, you you realize this is 1892 when he first comes up with this idea. 1894 during the with the march, he's he's sort of. A part of what was called the Good Roads Movement, but the roads in America at this point—this is before the automobile, about a, a, you know, at least a decade before the automobile, maybe two before we really had an economy of scale for uh, cars in America—and he's part of this sort of fledgling movement, which basically was dominated by bicyclists for obvious reasons, right? They wanted better roads, but even Coxie's great frustration during this period is he networks with good roads advocates around the country is that um, and there is a bicycle craze, by the way, because there's this fellow, uh, Colonel Albert Pope, who has begun importing bicycles and with pneumatic tires. So it's become kind of a craze among the rich particularly, but the, the roads were pretty rough. Even the National Pike, which was the road that Coxey ironically ended up going down for the last half of his trip, was uh, in real disrepair. It just showed how much the railroads had eclipsed uh, the original vision of Calhoun and Clay, the great American system, the National Pike. It just sort of had fallen into disrepair.
1: As the country slips deeper into the panic of 1893, Coxie and Brown decide to team up. They go back to Coxie's hometown of Maslin, Ohio, and began planning a march. They're going to invite the world's news media, and they're going to invite any unemployed people or anyone who wants to march with them from Massillon to Washington, D.C., with the idea of getting to Washington, D.C. on May Day, Workers' Day, and delivering a speech on the steps of the Capitol or in the Capitol uh, to announce Jacob Coxey's Good Roads Plan. We talked to our guest Jerry Prout as they prepare to step off towards the end of March in 1894, and the logistics Planning such a massive, massive operation.
2: They leave from Massillon uh, on noon Easter Sunday, March 25th. Just as a preamble, they've Brown and Coxie have spent at least three months uh, planning this march uh, and they've networked. Coxie spent a lot of time and a lot of his own money sending circulars and petitions around the country because obviously they wanted to drum up. Uh, marchers they want people who will join them in mass and unfortunately on the eve of the march when you have about 40 reporters who have gathered in the uh, the city you only have about two or three marchers who have come and it, uh, overnight that improved to about 120 or so that leave but it wasn't near what uh people were predicting or coxie or brown expected they had raised the expectation level too high. But anyway, they, they depart. Uh, if you Google map, uh, Massillon to Washington <clears throat> today, you're going on a route from I-76 East down to I-70 and you're doing it in about six hours and eight minutes. And I've done it a little faster, a little slower as I did my research on this book, but, um, uh, it's about 350 miles. It probably took, they probably marched about 425, 450 miles when it was all totaled. Uh, it took 35 days, it was quite a feat when you think about it, because as you mentioned, the weather was inhospitable for a large part of it into April. And of course, they're going on sort of a mountainous journey. And when they get to the Blue Ridge, it snows. The only time they did not uh, walk was uh, they did a canal trip uh, down from uh, Cumberland to Hancock, Maryland to avoid the worst of the Blue Ridge Mountains down on the CNO Canal. It took up three of the days. They end up camped Campton, H- Hagerstown for the rest of uh, three days before the final to rest before the final push to Washington. <clears throat> uh, they're going about ten or fifteen miles a day, uh, fifteen miles on a good day, uh, which is pretty remarkable cont- considering the terrain. The fact that there's more than one person walking, they have to keep some semblance of order. And it's uh, if you if you walk that long, you realize that you know twenty minutes average. For, for most people, maybe faster if you're a good walker, but you go for more than five or six miles and it's not quite as brisk. So they went through from Massillon in Ohio, just for people who understand the geography uh, in, in your state, went from Massillon to Canton to Louisville, down to Alliance to Salem to Columbia and East Palatine and to New Galilee. They left the state around April the 1st. And they uh, headed toward Pittsburgh and then down toward Frostburg and uh, so forth. So it was, it was quite a physical feat in addition to, to being uh, a spectacle.
1: One thing you can you can feel for the marchers is it, it's very cold. Like it snows the first couple of days and snows later in their trail. kind of reminds me of last winter and uh, almost any winter in Northeast Ohio. Where just when you think it's March and you're out of it, it ends up being cold all the way through April. That's what we had this year. And that's what Coxey ran into in the spring of 1894, an unusually cold spring in Ohio. In that spring of of, eight, of 94, this story, like we said, was is one of the most covered stories of the late 19th century here in America. The media went nuts for it. It had all these human interest stories, and and the you know what's going to happen when they get to DC? You know, are they going to to raid the treasury or you know go go disp- depose? president cleveland it really had a lot of elements of a great story but it wouldn't have been nearly the the an event i'd even heard of if it weren't for the news media and how they covered it and how media changed in the 1890s became a little more sensationalized became a little more personal we talked to jerry about the influence and the effect that the media had on Coxey's march
2: So this is really one of the interesting uh, features of the march, because I think it's one of the first times you have kind of a real media event. Professor Michael Sweeney, who's over at the Ohio University Scripps School, did a wonderfully nuanced and groundbreaking piece on Coxie back in 1997. And he actually documents that this is the most covered story on a sustained basis since the Civil War. I mean, uh, the contested election of 1876 obviously gets a lot of coverage, lasts a lot, but sporadic in terms of news events. This and this really impressed itself upon me when I was doing uh, my research. And there's so many good electronic uh, newspaper archives today that are available to researchers that weren't when others did research on Coxie. But he essentially dominated this march, essentially dominated the news, three, sometimes two or three stories on the front page, let alone uh, in <clears throat> somewhere in the newspaper for for over five weeks, actually more, because after, uh, after the march ended, he uh, it continued to dominate the uh, Western Union uh, person, a e, uh, guy by the name of E.P. Bishop, who would go ahead by about a day to the next stop and set up the telegraph operation so that the reporters, uh, you talk about physical feed, not only did they have to walk, they didn't get a chance to rest, they had to file their stories when they reach the next town, the, the person who really is responsible for this uh, being the most covered story is a- also a native son. It's Robert Skinner, who is the son of a wealthy family in Massillon. He buys the Massillon Evening Independent, by the way, later becomes a devotee of William McKinley and ends up as the ambassador to Ethiopia. But um, he begins to write stories about this strange association between Brown and Coxie back in January of 1894. And as they begin planning the march, and these these two are on the wires and they get they get picked up by editors like Charles Dennis of the Chicago Record, for example. And he tags a young reporter by the name of Ray Standard Baker to go to Massillon and see what this crazy fellow, or I think he calls him a queer chap, Coxie is up to. Including Wilbur Miller, by the way, uh, of the Cincinnati Enquirer, uh, another Ohioan. And if you go out to your wonderful Ohio Historical Society uh, archives, you can uh, ask for a copy of his scrapbook of the Coxie March, and it's a fascinating really,
1: read. They, they have that, the archives? They have, ha- they, Ohio they History do, connection. they wow. do. Thanks for listening to Ohio V. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection for only the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year. And go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. It's cool that Jerry used the Ohio History Connection archives as part of his research for this book. Um, And again, if you're doing any kind of research, you need to go see our folks up on the third floor at the Ohio History Center. In today's Ohio History Connection Minute, we're sitting down with Todd Kleisman. Todd is the Director of Government Relations. Uh, He's been at the OHC forever, and we really wouldn't be on the board with the Ohio History Connection or get nearly the help that we've gotten with the show without Todd. Uh, A friend introduced us, and he's been a big fan of the show ever since and it's really been a huge help uh, connecting us with everybody over there and really, really help a big-time uh, friend of the show. He's even got an Ohio V. The World t-shirt that he proudly wears. So so we sit down with Todd Kleisman to talk about his role in this week's Ohio History Connection Minute. You always work on and put on a great event called Statehood Day. What's Statehood Day and, and when will we be looking forward to
0: that in 2019? Sure. We... Uh We get together the Ohio history community on or about the state's birthday every year. So the Ohio General Assembly took up state business for the very first time on March 1st, 1803 in Chillicothe. So we think of that as Ohio's birthday. And we think that's a good occasion to have the history and history-related organizations come together at the Ohio State House. So uh, we'll be having that event at the Ohio State House on February 27th, Uh, sometimes March 1st falls on a on a, on a day when the General Assembly is not around. Um, but that's that's an opportunity for us to remind our uh, state legislative friends about the importance of Ohio history and try to speak with one voice about the issues that are important to Ohio and Ohio history-related organizations. So Statehood Day has really become a great um, defining event for uh, Ohio history organizations, including the History Connection. Right, and you guys,
1: it really also highlights how well I think Ohio History Connection works with local history alliances and history, you know, organizations. So that's also the day where you guys hand out some of the grant money for, for projects and such as well, correct?
0: We do. Yeah, it's uh, really one of the most important things that we do is to work effectively with organizations all across Ohio. Uh, so, yes, we give an award uh, on that day. We also hand out what we call big checks, uh, those Ohio History Fund uh Uh, grant awards, it's a competitive matching grants program that uh, Ohioans who want to donate a portion of their uh, state income tax return, uh, they can make a charitable contribution to that effect. And we take all of those dollars and we turn that into a, a grants program, it's called the Ohio History Fund, it's been very effective.
1: Thanks again to Todd for all he's helped this show with and all the good work he does for Ohio history. Uh, and also we'll have Statehood Day. Celebration of Ohio's birth uh, is Wednesday, February 27th. And that's at the Ohio Statehouse. A great lunch and, and speeches given every year. Uh, a really fun time. So you can go to OhioHistory.org for more information on Statehood Day. As you can imagine, Coxey's Army was a ragtag group. Dirty. Sweaty, smelly There's no showers They're sleeping outside basically Or under a tent You know for five weeks On the journey from Ohio to Washington D.C. As Jerry talks about it used to be an old saying You call a group of people or if they, You know a ragtag if they're dirty You call them gosh you guys look like Coxie's Army Or people when a lot of food was made Gosh you made enough food To feed Coxie's Army It was an old saying And Jerry and I are determined to bring it back Bring it back from the early 20th century uh, and mid 20th century into pop culture. The idea of Coxey's Army.
2: I think he's a great Ohioan. You know, I, I he he he. When I was growing up, of course, this is the post World War II era. You know, it was just, still disparaging to say if you were with your buddies and you looked kind of sloppy. Your your parents might say, "Oh, you guys look like Coxey's Army," <laughs> and that was it. Was truly a slang term, and uh, so. I don't think it is anymore I hope, I hope we we're correcting that
1: Let's bring that back As Coxie's army leaves Ohio and makes its way into western Pennsylvania They stop in Pittsburgh And they're greeted there by what's said to be nearly 100,000 people As they parade down the streets there's, there's you know, crowds that are 40 people deep Cheering them Pittsburgh, a place of where the workers' rights battle was well underway Lives had been lost um, and Coxie's army represented something that they understood the casualties of capitalism, as Jerry Prout calls them. Their reception in Pittsburgh must have really buoyed their, their spirits because it had been a tough couple of weeks with the weather, with you know not having that many marchers. Um, but they come to Pittsburgh. We asked Jerry what it was like when they came to your town. because they always, you know whether they played a baseball game against your city's team, uh, they gave speeches. There was always an evening program with Coxey and Brown giving speeches. Um, we talked to Jerry just about what it was like when Coxey's Army came to your city. That's
2: a good question because you know Pittsburgh was special. They just they they were in the aftermath of the Homestead Strike in 1892, the famous Homestead Strike. So it wasn't a typical, uh, uh, necessarily a typical arrival. But um, in most towns along the way. The, I would just say that the the greetings were warm uh, and and very generous, and uh, you know part of that I think was Coxey's advancing of the march. He had been, as I said, over the period of months in anticipation, had sent out and identified people who would be sympathetic, and uh, he actually had an engineer who had plotted the route, so he knew sort of where they were headed every night, and so he was able to anticipate and get someone who was there who could kind sort of organize support. And, you know, you had these bicyclists, for example, who would typically come out and ride all around the marchers and greet them. Uh, and, you know, cynically, you could say, well, everyone was, because the the, the the backdrop, the backstory was obviously that these were industrial armies moving towards Washington. There was not just Coxies, but we can talk later about the, the other armies coming from the West. So people were obviously a little bit fearful that maybe, more than just a a petition on boots was in the works that maybe there was going to be some violence. So you could say cynically, maybe they were just trying to move, (laughs) move the marchers in and out of their town as fast as they could. But when you read the accounts, you realize that, you know, people were turning out with food and clothing and they were providing places to sleep. And, uh, sure. A lot of them were curious, but there were also a lot of cheering. There was a lot of anticipation. There was a lot of, there were banners, there was welcoming, um, there are exceptions to this. In, in fact, in East Palantine, uh where the Coxie advance, uh, the, the person that, who was in the network was down with the mumps, he was unable to organize a proper reception. So uh, the mayor of the town sort of shooed them out to uh, the outskirts. They pitched their tents. They didn't have a, a place to sleep in. Uh, but this is a rarity. Um, there were a couple of other incidents along the way that were, I would, would say hostile, but at least cold. But um, they were typically very warmly welcomed. And um, even in areas where they anticipated a, a chilly reception, uh, in Latonia, for example, in Ohio, a heavily Catholic population, Brown had been told beforehand not to unfurl his religious banners. Yet the mayor there uh, came out, welcomed them, led them to a... Uh, a nail shop nearby which was heated, it had been a cold day again. They were fed by the local uh, sympathizers lots of food to stock their commissary wagons. So uh, all in all, I think a pretty positive uh, and welcoming reception from town to town.
1: One interesting feature of Coxey's army was its inclusiveness. There were African-Americans within the group. It became a huge story in the African-American community. They did not care about race in a time when people only cared about race. We asked Jerry just about the inclusiveness and, and that really striking feature of Coxey's army.
2: Certainly, the, the, the sort of at three different levels, they are uh, transitional. We've already discussed the, the Good Roads plan and the, the boldness of that idea. And then the in terms of journalism, the notion of branding or the spectacle but the one I think you're pointing to is 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 perhaps one of the most striking, and that is that they were a very diverse march uh, racially. In the context, they had uh, a black standard bearer, uh, Jasper Johnson or Jasper Johnson Buchanan. He's was actually apparently from Buchanan, West Virginia. So the, the, his his name never was quite clear in the in the press accounts. But they also have others. Uh, African Americans in the march uh, professor C. b. freedom Freeman, as he was called, who was a uh, who was a singer and leader of the Commonwealth Glee Club they had a band and they had a glee club in this in this ragtag outfit and he was um, so there were at least four or five other African Americans that we can count from various photographs. Uh, this is a period and so so what's the significance of that well, this is a period right after the obviously the passage in the 1860s of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, and yet we're still um, highly seg- segregated, highly uh, exclusionary uh, of black Americans. And Coxey welcomes everyone into the common wheel. He has, uh, also had a Native American, Honoré Jackson. Uh, the Washington Bee, the black newspaper in, in Washington, uh, leading up to the march, uh, they would publish every week with a masthead, Coxie is coming. Uh, by the time the March reaches Washington, uh, some estimate, you know, that, that the entire, this is a, a I'm sure hyperbole, but, but the number of, uh, African-Americans in the audience to greet Coxey, some estimated to be the entire black population of Washington. He, he's very popular. Uh, and, and for the reason that, that this is an integrated March, they, they, these guys are, are not just marching together. They're eating together. They're sleeping, uh, under the same roof. Um. So it's it's uh, quite striking in a period when, uh, yeah, I think it was 1892, the peak year, as best anybody can count for the number of lynchings in this country, uh, and still a very uh, segregated period, both north and south. So this is a striking feature of the march, and one that I think stands out in Coxey's favor and Brown's as well, basically. Brown, at one point, says we welcome the entire rainbow.
1: It's probably one of the first podcasts out there about Coxie's army. And I, kept, I was telling Miss Ohio View of the World about it. Another book came in the mail. I think it was actually Jerry's book, and, she, and we laugh about it now, but she's like, more Coxie? Um, just this idea of, like, I'm studying this really little-known event. Why, why are you so interested in it? But I'm explaining it to her, and and I'm telling her, you know, there's 150, 200 people marching from Ohio to D.C. She's like, why is it an army, Coxie's army, if it's, you know, 200 people? And the answer is that there were other groups, larger groups, mostly from the West, in the West that had seen the railroads dry up, had seen a lot of the work dry up, believed so much in the silver, you know, bringing back the silver standard for money, that there were other armies, nine major armies uh, that Jerry talks about. These were armies from the West, larger groups that are hijacking trains, um, and, you know, coming from California, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, all over the West, coming to Washington to try and meet Coxie. His idea had struck a chord, and this is what Coxie's army is. We talked to Jerry Prout about the other groups, that make up Coxie's Army?
2: They are largely Western. Uh, They come from San Francisco, Seattle, Spokane. Uh, There's one up in Chicago, uh, out of Platteville, Colorado. Uh, And you're right, they're much more, they're they're larger, uh, up to 1,000 in the case of Kelly's Army uh, that leaves from San Francisco. And by the way, along the way, picks up Jack London, who does a... uh, He, he actually does this uh, tramp diary, which I think you can still read online of his nine or 10 days spent with Kelly's army. And because of the distance up in Montana, and this provides some of the excitement for the march, one reason that leads to all the great anxiety, particularly in Washington, the nation's capital. Uh, William Hogan, who's a 35-year-old uh, teamster in the mines, he ends up uh, stealing a train near Butte. Actually, stealing a train. And Attorney General Olney uh, <laughs> has ordered the U.S. Marshals to uh, basically uh, shadow him. Now they have to chase him. And as they do so, uh, uh, in the stolen train, Hogan stops in Billings and is being uh, uh, feted by the, the local population. And uh, in walk some of the marshals. And anyway, there's a standoff and a person is shot. So now suddenly, For the first time in the march you have uh, an actual uh, case of violence and and death and so um, the cause was more or less they all were essentially playing off of coxie's idea and and supporting coxie in some way by trying to move to washington in sync with him uh very few of them well only uh, uh well there's some stragglers that come from the other armies but the basic basically the only one that, it, with any force that came all the way was Fry's army out of Los Angeles, and it didn't arrive until uh, late May. One of the leaders of uh, Fry's army out of LA was a guy named Tom Galvin, and he too commandeered a train and took a contingent of about 300 men, and he goes as far, this is a, another Ohio aspect, he gets as far as Cincinnati before now Governor McKinley sends in the militia and uh, as the men begin marching toward Columbus. So, um, and Galvin makes it to Washington as part, he's part of this group of Fry's army that makes it, but makes it very late. And none of these, none of these marches are ex- as successful, none of them reach, with, the, with that exception, reach the Capitol. But what they do do is uh, create a lot of anxiety in the Capitol because the newspaper accounts, uh, you can imagine uh, being in Washington, which is basically a city not familiar with industry at all, just a government town, even then, suddenly you have these unruly industrials commandeering trains and, and headed towards your city and not clear what their intent was. Many people thought they wanted to take over the Treasury. Uh, others thought they wanted to uh, break into the White House. There was just all kinds of anxiety in Washington, D.C.
1: In large part, it's these other armies that are a little more Violent, a little more unpredictable, um, that caused so much anxiety in Washington D.C. As they you move into Maryland and move closer to the nation's capital in their May first deadline for reaching the steps of the capital, the government is afraid. They're afraid that they're going to go after the armory. They're going to start a re, you know a riot or a rebellion in the city, attack the treasury and take the money. You know, go to the White House and try and you know talk to, to President Cleveland, a very uncertain time. And a lot of that had to do with those Western armies that were aligned with Coxie. But as they come to D.C., the city is not at all, at least the leadership, is not at all wants them there. We talked to Jerry Prout about those pre-March uh, preparations. And as they finally make their way down Pennsylvania Avenue,
2: it's interesting, the Secret Service has been dispatched to intercept them near Hagerstown. That's how high the level of concern was. Uh, this is the first time, uh, I believe, based on accounts, that the Secret Service is actually protecting the president. They actually set up a little fort on the White House grounds called Thurber's Fort to protect uh, to protect the president. Chief of Police and the uh, National Guard are, uh, are called out um, and, and beefed up. There are more and more, uh, officers deputized because there's concern that, uh, of what will happen, uh, when Coxie arrives. But in fact, what, what, uh, occurs is Coxie has uh, come to, and the army has, uh, planted itself at Brightwood Park, an old racetrack, ironically, uh, on the outskirts of town. And they rest there for a day while Coxie tries to get an agreement from the Sergeant at Arms, the Speaker of the House, and the Senate President to, uh, to speak on the Capitol steps. He's unsuccessful in doing that. And uh, the next morning, uh, then goes out to Brightwood Park and they begin the procession into Washington. He has uh, an advanced man in Washington, by the way, who has been uh, preparing things and preparing the route. They come down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue and uh, there's a throng of people, uh, uh, thousands by the time they get up to the uh, Capitol itself uh Coxie, in a kind of a poignant scene, uh gets out of his phaeton. He kisses his wife, his infant son named Legal Tender, who has come, <laughs> uh, is a, uh is uh le- left behind, and his daughter, uh Jesse, who Carl Brown later marries in October, by the way, uh Jesse uh is the goddess of peace as she was as they left that mass she wasn't allowed to go on the march no women were allowed on the march coxie and brown didn't want any kind of uh rumors of uh behaviors so they just decided to uh, leave women aside although annie diggs the kansas populist, joins them in washington for the final march as well and coxie's a very big fan of annie diggs who's a prominent populist from kansas but anyway, this, this troop, which has now grown to about 600 as they wa- march through Washington, is ready to, to march onto the Capitol grounds, hear Coxie's speech, as are the other thousands gathered.
1: The day had finally come. May 1st, 1894, Coxie's army, which had swelled at this point, had reached the Capitol and was marching to the Capitol steps. It's a climactic moment. Everyone from the city, had turned out, supporters, and as he tries to make his way onto the Capitol grass, to the Capitol steps, basically a police riot breaks out. The police had no intention of letting Jacob Coxey of Massillon, Ohio, make his little speech about his good roads plan. The police begin billy-clubbing, beating up everyone involved in the march, spectators, horses, and most of all, Jacob Coxey and Carl Brown. We talked to Jerry about just what happened when Coxey's army reach the Capitol.
2: The problem is that the, the, there are some signs up on the White House, the Capitol grounds that say, say no trespassing, no, no one can walk on the, on the grass. And that gets uh, easily violated as they go across those low retaining walls on the east side of the Capitol and toward the steps. And that's where the police begin to uh, create what is essentially a melee by uh, beating up on the African-American flag bearer, Johnson, they, they wrestle Coxie to the ground. He loses a necklace and is bloodied in the, in the melee. Coxie trips a few times. He's uh, prevented from giving his speech and hauled off to jail along with Brown and a, uh, another leader of a contingent that has helped swell the ranks of the, of the marchers, a guy named by, uh, 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 from Philadelphia. So anyway, they, they uh, end up in jail and uh, are sentenced to a, about a 30-day sentence. Um, and that's the end of the, the very uh, sort of dismal end of the march. Coxie's never allowed to give the speech that he wanted to give and has uh, been trying to, uh, has carried it in his pocket since they left Massillon.
1: and Brown and others are thrown in jail. Coxie does a month for stepping on the Capitol grass, one of history's most bogus charges. But the march kind of fizzles out, and it is anticlimactic. It's one of the reasons, you know, that this story doesn't get more traction. The buildup is fantastic, but when it's time to actually complete their march and give their speech, the police step in and basically beat the crap out of them. We talked to Jerry about this kind of post-march letdown, as Coxey's army fizzles out.
2: The technicality of trespassing, trespassing on the Capitol grounds. So it's, it's a pretty uh, miscellaneous sort of a, uh, a misdemeanor charge, but um, that was the way that the uh, authorities asserted their, their power and uh, ended the march. But there's there was no uh, no other injuries uh, that we know of at least, and not to any bystanders as well. And the and the march up to the Capitol is quite a joyous affair. Uh, it just doesn't uh, consummate in any kind of speech by Coxey. And of course, the the Good Roads legislation, uh, even though Coxey comes back in the next year to testify, uh, essentially dies in
1: Congress. You know, but Coxie was an innovator. It really is American history's first march on Washington, a protest march, the likes of which we'd see throughout the 20th century. And obviously, as, you know, as recently as last year, a uh, major, the Women's March in 2017, it beca- it's become a part of the American identity, the March on Washington. And it's all thanks to Jacob Coxie.
2: Uh, and then, you know, the the famous ones, the Bonus Army in 32, uh, the March on Washington in 63, the Vietnam marches and several of them actually in the late 60s. Yeah, I think it did set a precedent. And so maybe it wasn't as effective in its time, but it certainly left a mark on those who wanted to, to create a tension for their cause. And that's what Coxie wanted to do.
1: And although the Good Roads Plan wasn't adopted by Congress, you know, in 1894, 1895, the economy slowly turns around under Ohio's President McKinley, elected in 1896. But Coxie's plan was one that was ahead of its time. Coxey's Coxie's alive 35 years later, when the country has plunged into another Great Depression, this one even more serious than the Panic of 1893, the one that obviously we all know today, that's the Great Depression. In fact, Coxie would be elected mayor of Maslin during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt elected 1952 or 1932 brings a lot of those same plans, those works project plans that Coxie had, his $500 million Good Roads plan. Uh, and even the Secretary of War, actually, Coxie gets him to, uh, to present a modified Good Roads plan to Roosevelt shortly after his election. But the New Deal would find a time when Coxie's idea of how to alleviate a national economic issue, uh, whether it's his Good Road plan or the Works Projects Administration under, under Roosevelt, Jacob Coxey was a man ahead of his time.
2: As part of this Good Roads movement, that's really the precursor for, you know, uh, the, and the involvement of, I think more largely, the government, the government involvement in helping the unemployed is uh, part of the works Progress administration that Roosevelt begins actually hoover was uh, had had his own uh, set of public works projects to be fair, and then Roosevelt obviously uh, scaled up immensely during the New Deal. Uh, you have the interstate highway program under Eisenhower. so all that I think follows in that legacy. Uh, you can also say Cox was part of the legacy to end the gold standard. I mean in nineteen seventy one Nixon divorces us from gold and, and finally and uh, and then of course his, his you know uh, contribution in terms of integration and, and diversity. So I, I think there are several ways Coxie was sort of a, as we said, a transitional event but also visionary, if you will in some ways and even though at the time uh, it was looked at as as a, an event that was sort of led by two cranks and and you know very eccentric and their ideas were sort of out of place they, they did find their time.
1: Much has been made about the idea that Coxie's Army played a role in the plot for The Wizard of Oz. Much like Jack London, who gets caught up in the, in the Coxie's Army, you know, at one of the armies out west, Frank Baum is a journalist who covers Coxie's Army, and ultimately, five, six years later, writes the book The Wizard of Oz. This idea that you know, they're on this march to the Emerald City on the Yellow Brick Road, representing the gold standard... And Crescent, you know the the Emerald City, uh, representing Washington D.C. The Tin Man is the industrial worker, and the Scarecrow is the farmer who is ravaged by the Panic of 1893. As Dorothy and, and this and her group march to air their grievances um, with the Wizard, you know who who is interpreted to be the president, President Grover Cleveland. It, it has a lot to do with the bimetallic arguments of the time. But again, we think at the march. Many people said that it's really an allegory to Coxey's army and Coxey's march to the capital. We asked Jerry about this this theory and if it has holds any water.
2: This is actually an allegory for the monetary debate in the late nineteenth century, and Coxey's a part of that. Gretchen Ritter, who. Uh, I turned to a lot from the University of Texas. She's done some marvelous work on monetary debates, which are so complicated. She uh, explored what Baum was attempting to do, and she also thinks it's sort of a satire of the of the period. You, you know, th- there are all kinds of ways to to look at the uh, at the event. The Tin Man was, you know, was he the industrial worker? Was the cowardly lion William Jennings Bryan? Was the Scarecrow the American farmer? I mean, he, there are various ways to. They're on a march to the Emerald City, which was Washington D.C. Right, so. It's, it's, it's certainly uh, one of those uh, theories that I don't think you just dismiss, and whether Baum intended it or not, uh, you're right. I mean, it has been uh, contemplated that that was his intent, and uh, I think you can read it that way if you want.
1: Fifty years to the day of the first march on Washington, when Coxey's army was dispersed on May 1st, 1894, 50 years later, Jacob Coxey stood on the steps of the Capitol May 1st, 1944, and he was able to give his speech to video cameras, news cameras, and the assorted media, and a small crowd that had gathered. As we leave you today, we, we asked Jerry to read a portion of the speech that was given, and was supposed to be given in 1894, that was finally given 50 years later.
2: We have come here through toil and weary march, through storms and tempests, over mountains and amid the trials of poverty and distress at the doors of Congress in the name of him whose banners we bear in the name of him who pleaded for the poor and the oppressed, that they should heed the voice of the distress and despair that is now coming up from every section of our country, that they should consider the conditions of the unemployed of our land and enact such laws as will give them employment, bring happier conditions to the people, and the smile, contentment, to our citizens.
1: Our book recommendation is obviously Jerry Prout, our guest, political science professor from Marquette University, and his book, Coxie's Crusade for Jobs, Unemployment in the Gilded Age. It's only about 200 pages. Uh, and like we said, there's a link in the show description uh, on the website, on our website, Ohio v the World, history, or OhioVetheWorldPodcast.com. There's also a link. Buy that book. It's really a great, there's so many stories that we couldn't get into and so many different marchers and aspects of Coxie's Army that we really couldn't get into. So again, Coxie's Crusade for Jobs by Jerry Prout. Thank you so much to Jerry for joining us and letting us know about this little known, uh, piece of Ohio and American history. Thanks again to our new sponsor. Go bus, go to ridegobus.com. If you need to get around Ohio cheaply, uh, and comfortably, uh, we're really excited. They're going to be one of our sponsors here for the rest of this season. Season three. Thanks to Jason McCormick, Jason Lee McCormick, one of my best friends from growing up. Uh, who provided some of the music. Check out Jason's new album, Into Echoes. You can find it at jasonleemccormick.bandcamp.com And again, that's jasonleemccormick.bandcamp.com We're back in two weeks. We're back on our regular every other Sunday schedule. Uh, in episode eight, we will go to the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center in Wilberforce, Ohio. And we'll sit down there at Central State University Campus, a historically black college. Um, to talk about the life of Colonel Charles Young, who's the highest ranking African American military army officer during his lifetime. Uh, although he's born into slavery in Kentucky, uh, raised in Ripley, Ohio, and ultimately rises, goes to West Point and, and lives an extraordinary life of valor and courage, but also a life of discrimination. So episode eight, Ohio versus Discrimination, uh, really looking forward to giving you guys the story of Charles Young an amazing American. That'll do it, guys, for today. Thanks again to Jerry Prout. Uh, such a cool story, Coxie's Army. Don't forget to rate and review the show. Um, it, you know, If you subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, that really helps, but also giving us a rating, giving us some comments, whether it's constructive criticism or you just like the show, uh, much appreciated. Like us on Facebook. Uh, we're up around 1,000 likes, finally, and follow us on Instagram. Uh, at Ohio v the World podcast or Twitter at Ohio v the World, um, and again, people email us all the time with show ideas on any of those platforms. You can always uh, just email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail Thanks again, guys, and we will look forward to seeing you in two weeks for episode eight. Ohio v the World has been brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com, check out their cheap rates and routes all over the Buckeye State. Next time you need a ride around the state of Ohio, whether it's northwest or down the Queen City of Cincinnati, northeast Ohio or southeast Ohio, and all points in between, go to RideGoBus.com.
0: My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page.